You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. So I've heard my fair share of what I call fire and brimstone uh, preaching before. I'm sure many of you have too. Uh, You can often even see uh, and know when you're going to get one of those kind of fiery sermons uh, just in the way the pastor approaches the pulpit. There's a, a particular pastor that I'm thinking of in my head. And whenever he got to the pulpit, his, his eyes would uh, always narrow and he'd kind of stare down the congregation for a minute before he spoke. And he'd always take this deep breath uh, before he began And if you saw him doing all of those things, then you knew that hearing him preach would be like watching a volcano erupt for the next 30 minutes. You know, words would just fly, uh, spit would just go everywhere. He'd kind of, you know, beat his fist against the pulpit. Uh, And then if he thought anyone's, uh, you know, attention was going to drift, you know, sometimes he'd he'd beat the, the fist, you know, twice as hard. And I always remember asking myself during some of those sermons, um, is he okay? (laughs) Like, you know, his face is getting red, sweat's pouring off of him. I mean, is he, is he having a heart attack? Like, do I need to call an ambulance or somebody? Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've seen many pastors like this. I'm sure you have too. Uh, and, and most pastors like that that I've met, um, I, I do think that their motivations are genuine. Uh, Their heart's in the right place. They love the Lord. Uh, They want to see others come to love the Lord. You know, they want others to spend eternity with the Lord in heaven and avoid eternity in hell. So I I, I think their motivations are pure, uh, but I don't think that their methodology is the most effective. Because I don't think that scaring others to salvation is a solid strategy for evangelism. You know, a a fear of hell will ultimately never cause you to be faithful to God. Uh, It's kind of like the the kid whose parents tell him, you know, he's going to be spanked or uh, grounded if he steals that cookie from the cookie jar. Uh, That fear of punishment may work for a little while, Uh, But as soon as the kid thinks that he can get away with it, as soon as uh, the parents' backs are turned, um, he's going to steal the cookie. Uh, And even if somehow that fear of that punishment is able to prevent him from acting on his desires, it still doesn't do anything to stop the desires in and of themselves. Because punishment can never fully produce purity. And so I I bring this all up this morning and begin by saying that uh, because we're actually going to be diving into the topic of hell in today's text. And and I know that many of you are probably thinking, wow, what a great topic for a Mother's Day sermon. Good job, Richard. Um, But I'm preaching on this doctrine not because I want to scare you into heaven, uh, because I literally want to scare the hell out of you. I'm preaching on this doctrine for a couple of reasons. Um, One is simply because these verses in Mark chapter 9 are immediately following the verses that I just preached last week. 
Uh, we're working our way through the entire gospel of Mark, verse by verse, and you know, these just happen to be the next text. Uh, but I'm also preaching these verses because I'm convinced uh, there is hope that can be found in these verses. Uh, if you remember last year, um, I preached through this sermon series called um, History is His Story. It was the, the first series that I preached when I got here. Uh, we walked through key passages of the Bible, kind of looking at the, the larger story of the Bible, uh, seeing how all of history really is his story. And the last sermon that I preached on that was from John's vision of heaven in the book of Revelation. And from that text, I preached on how heaven offers hope. And this text on hell, I think in many ways, is a complement to that text in Revelation, which is why I've actually titled this sermon, How Heaven Offers Hope and How Hell Can Too. Um, I, I want you to know three truths about hell from Jesus's own teachings here uh, to show you uh, that the existence of hell can help you understand the holiness of God and the hope that can only be found in that kind of God. So let me go ahead and read Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50, and then we'll dive in. Says, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled with two hands than to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Uh, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another." So as we think about Jesus's teachings here, we first have to ask the question of how this topic, especially this topic of hell, even came up. And I do want to note just right from the very beginning, this is actually not an uncommon issue for Jesus to address. Jesus actually spoke on the realities of hell more than anyone else in Scripture. But it does seem strange that Jesus has been privately teaching his disciples about topics related to faith and humility, as we've seen these last few weeks. And then suddenly in these verses, the conversation turns dark. And the imagery that Jesus uses here, quite honestly, is graphic and even violent. So, so how did we go from Jesus talking about the need for humility to talking about the existence of hell? 
Well, I believe it's mainly because Jesus needed to have a serious conversation with these men who haven't been taking their faith very seriously. I mean, just a a couple of verses prior, we saw that the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest. These poor, mostly uneducated men who no one had previously heard of and who would still be nobodies if it weren't for Jesus, these guys are arguing with one another over who is the greatest. So Jesus has to pull them back to reality by using such startling imagery to remind them that the stakes are so high, and because of that, their faith needs to get serious. I mean, Jesus isn't going to be around much longer, and when he's gone, it's these guys and the churches that they're going to start that will carry on Jesus's mission. They are Jesus's plan A, and there is no plan B. So they have to get serious about their faith. So he starts this conversation with his disciples by saying, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, in Palestine in the first century, it was a very agrarian society. They grew a lot of wheat and different grains, and to crush those grains and turn them into flour, they often had to use very large millstones. I mean, some of them could weigh as much as a thousand pounds and you'd need uh, donkeys or maybe even an ox just to turn them. This wasn't something a man could move on his own. Uh, There was actually in this time, there was a a famous Jewish revolutionary uh, who lived at the same time of Jesus. Uh, His name was Judas of Galilee. Uh, And he was a guy who urged the the Jews to stop paying taxes to Caesar, uh, and he urged them to revolt. And to make an example out of him, the Roman government actually had him drowned using one of these heavy millstones. So this example that Jesus is giving to his disciples uh, is one that they're probably pretty familiar with. They most likely have seen or at least heard what is, um, has, has happened uh, to these kinds of, of criminals. Uh, but this, this punishment of, of using this millstone wasn't for just any kind of crime. It's something that was reserved for the most heinous of crimes. Yet, Jesus says that such a punishment is fitting for those convicted of causing any of these little ones to sin. Now, that phrase, little ones, it it doesn't refer to physical children. Uh, Jesus is not talking about crimes against kids, specifically. Uh, Instead, he's talking about those who are spiritual infants or who are weak in the faith. Uh, The Greek word here that Jesus actually uses when he says to cause someone to sin is actually the word scandalizo, which is where we get the English word for scandalous. So Jesus isn't talking about just putting a a pebble in someone's path 
for them to step on, you know, where it might hurt for just a moment as they stub their toe on it, uh, but then they'll, they'll ultimately be fine. No, no, Jesus is talking about those who scandalize the faith of those who are just coming to know the Lord. Uh, An example of this might be a pastor who's caught in a financial or maybe a sex scandal, and that fallout is so egregious uh, that that someone who who maybe uh, was thinking about attending that church just decides they don't want to have anything to do with that church. Or maybe someone had been thinking about becoming a Christian, uh, but they, they look at that individual and that egregious sin, and they say, if, if that's what being a Christian looks like, if they're a Christian, then I don't want to have anything to do with that faith. And this is where we see the, the first truth that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, uh, specifically what he's trying to get them to know about hell. And it's the reality that the road to hell begins here on earth. He's saying there is a real possibility that your sinful actions here on earth might actually be the cause to sending someone else to hell in the afterlife. That that what you're doing now might be what's going to keep them out of heaven later. So he uses this very uh, graphic imagery about this millstone to say that if you're going to live your life in such a loose way so that it causes others to stumble away from the Christian life or to cause them to even despise the Christian faith, maybe it would just be better for you to be thrown down to the bottom of the sea where there is darkness and death. Better you go there than have a multitude of others go there because of you. So so hell is a literal place where some will spend eternity, uh, but the road to get there begins here on earth. Whether it's your own actions leading you down that path, or whether it's your actions spurring somebody else down that path, the road starts here. Uh, which is why C.S. Lewis, uh, he so aptly pointed out, saying, um, it's, it's not a question of God's sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Uh, hell is a place you can go, but it, it's not just a place you can go. If you don't begin that process of confronting your own sin now by submitting yourself to Christ as your Savior, hell is also something that you'll begin to become even in the here and now. Which is why C.S. Lewis also went on to say that there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God... Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. Everyone eventually will come to receive their greatest desire, either the desire to submit to God and spend eternity in His presence, 
or the desire to live your life apart from his authority, which means spending eternity in his absence, separated from his presence. And that latter reality will be true of all who choose to forego faith in Christ, but it'll be especially true of those who make a shipwreck of their own faith and in doing so cause others to stumble in their faith as well. So Jesus gives his disciples this warning about some of those who will go to hell. Uh, But then over the course of the next few verses, Jesus begins to give a description of hell as well. Uh, He uses some pretty startling imagery in these verses about cutting off your own limbs, tearing out your own eyes. Uh, And we'll, we'll get to that in just a few minutes and talk about what he means Uh, But right now, I just want to look at the descriptions of hell that Jesus offers. Uh, Verse 44, he calls hell an unquenchable fire. And then in verse 48, he says it's a place where the worm does not die. Uh, And then additionally, even that word that we translate as hell from from Greek uh, is the word Gehenna, which actually refers to uh, an actual garbage dump that existed right outside of Jerusalem in Jesus's day. Uh, He's referring to a physical place that existed uh, in his time. And at this garbage dump, uh, the fires there literally were never quenched because they were, you know, there's always more garbage to be added to this dump. So they were constantly having to burn this garbage from, from keeping it from building up too much. So the fires there literally never stopped. And Gehenna was also a place where they disposed of a lot of the bodies of the poor uh, and even some of the convicted criminals. And so the, the worms never went away either because there was always constantly new food for them to devour. So this is very striking, startling imagery. Uh, But what exactly did Jesus intend to teach you with this? Uh, Well, I I think you have to understand that this imagery is intended to be symbolic. Uh, This is not necessarily a literal description of what hell is actually like. Um, It's kind of like the, the transfiguration that we studied a few weeks ago. Uh, it, it, that, that, uh, that metaphor that was used by Mark, uh, it, it's not always meant to be taken literally. Uh, we saw Jesus' glory was put on display, and Mark described uh, he and his robes as being so bright as though you couldn't possibly have bleached them. Uh, but that description in the Transfiguration, it, it doesn't adequately describe what the disciples really saw. No words could have described that. It's just a metaphor. Uh, And anytime the Bible uses a metaphor to describe spiritual realities, uh, that symbolism, it always falls short of the reality. You know, the metaphors never quite do justice for what they're trying to describe. It was true for the transfiguration. It was also true for John's vision of heaven and the book of Revelation. Um, And it's true here for this depiction of hell as well. And that teaches you the the second truth that 
that you can learn about hell from this story, which is that hell is, it may not be what you think, but it is worse than you think. Uh, we, we learned first that the road to hell begins here on earth, but now you see and you learn that hell is not what you think, but it is probably worse than you think. Uh, we, we often you know, see those cartoon descriptions of hell, you know, where the devil uh, with these pointy ears, he's standing around holding a pitchfork and he's like prodding people into this lake of fire. Uh, but the reality is uh, that that's probably not an accurate description of hell at all. Uh, these depictions are, are meant to be taken figuratively, not literally. Uh, so, so there might not even be any literal fire in hell at all. We, we don't know. But if there's not, that, that shouldn't be cause for comfort. Uh, there's a, a pastor, R.C. Sproul, uh, who once put it this way. He said, I would not be surprised to learn that a sinner in hell would do anything possible to trade his circumstances for a lake of fire. So so when you read this description in Mark about this garbage dump with an unquenchable fire uh, filled with worms that do not die, uh, when you think about that lake of fire in the book of Revelation, uh, these images, they don't do justice to the reality of hell. There may or may not be literal lakes of fire there, uh, but whatever there is, if it's something different, it's most likely going to be worse. And those residing there may actually long to trade their circumstances for a lake of fire, thinking that that might actually be more comforting. So that's the, the description that Jesus offers here. So you understand now that the road to hell, it begins here on earth, uh, that hell is probably not what you think, but it is most assuredly uh, worse than you think. So so now we look at the the remaining of these verses uh, to see the the main uh, thrust of Jesus's teachings here for his disciples. Uh, The reality that because hell begins here uh, and because hell is worse than most imagine, uh, Jesus has to speak so candidly on this topic because there can be no halfway measures. No halfway measures can keep you from hell or ever make you holy. But because hell is so serious, uh, you must become serious about your faith. No halfway measure will work to keep you out of hell or will serve to make you holy. That's the third lesson that Jesus is teaching you. Uh, There there are some who who only want to think about the doctrines of hell just long enough to know how to avoid it. But pursuing holiness is more than just trying to avoid hell. Uh, There's another uh, Southern Baptist pastor, J.D. Greer. uh, He put it this way, saying, It's not enough for God to take us out of hell. He must take hell out of us. That's why Jesus writes in these verses that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Or if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
Even if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. He's not speaking literally, uh, but he is saying that the prize of heaven will never be gained without a proper pursuit. The Christian life is not a one-time decision that stems from a desire just to avoid a place of darkness and torment. It's an entire way of life where, where God doesn't just pull you off the path to hell. He teaches you how to fight against the remaining strongholds of hell that are still left in your heart. Uh, there's a uh, w- one more uh, pastor for you to listen to this morning. Uh, there's a, a pastor from the 1600s. Uh, his name was John Owens. And uh, he wrote a book called uh, The Mortification of Sin. Uh, and I think he very adequately in his book uh, describes how we ought to, to fight sin and how seriously we ought to be treating this fight uh, of sin. Uh, In his book, he said, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So fighting sin, it's kind of like committing yourself to total war. When a nation goes and fights a total war against the enemy, um, every sector of their economy Uh, Every part of their workforce dedicates themselves to the overall war efforts. And the same must be true for fighting sin. You have to commit every area of your life to fight for that cause. You must be willing to take drastic measures and sever any area or aspect of your life that has been contaminated and poisoned by sin, because if you don't kill that sin, the poison in it will be killing you. That's why elsewhere in John Owens's book, he likens sin or he likens the fight against sin to one who's fighting against a snake. He says, let no man think to kill sin With few, easy, or gentle strokes. He who hath once smitten a serpent, if he follow not on his blow until it be slain, he may repent that he ever began the quarrel. And so he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to the death. I mean, if you walk out into your garden and there's a snake and you try to kill it with a shovel you'd better make sure it's dead. You better give it a few extra whacks. Otherwise, as soon as you turn your back on it, you may regret that you ever tried to kill the snake in the first place. If you don't pursue it until it's dead, you're gonna get bit. And depending on the kind of snake, you may actually be the one who ends up dead. And the same is true for our spiritual life. If you don't continue your battle with sin, uh, with everything you've got, doing whatever it takes to win that battle, being willing to strike that sin, dealing it that final blow, if you don't do that, you may regret that you ever even began the battle in the first place. 
Uh, So no halfway measures can keep you from hell or ever make you holy. And and as we continue to to think about that, um, I understand that many of these verses that we've looked at have been dark. Uh, They have been heavy. I know that there, there may be even some of you who are thinking, man, this really is the worst Mother's Day sermon ever. Uh, but, but let's look to verses 49 and 50. Uh, the last two verses of this text, um, let's see some final encouragement from these texts. Uh, J- Jesus says here that everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Uh, Jesus here provides you with just a couple of final images, uh, one of salt, one of fire. He says there, verse 49, everyone needs to be salted with fire, which which is kind of a a strange sentence. But both of these images are intended to contrast the images he spoke about earlier in this text. Um, Earlier, when he gave a description of hell, Jesus said it was like a worm. Uh, that never dies. Uh, When you think about a worm, what what does a worm do? It it decomposes things. So his description of hell is one of eternal spiritual decomposition. Uh, Regardless of of what it'll actually look like, uh, hell is going to be an ongoing, never-ceasing breakdown of the human soul. Now contrast that with the image of salt. What does salt do? It's a preservative, especially in Jesus's day uh, when there was no such thing as refrigerators. Uh, The only way to to keep something like meat from rotting and becoming putrid was to preserve it in salt. And so Jesus says that everyone must be salted. In, In other words, they must be preserved because the broken world around us is looking less and less like the image of Christ and because it is devolving more and more into a state of hell, we need something that can preserve us from that decomposition. We need salt. But Jesus also gives the imagery of fire as well. He says you must be salted with fire Uh, Salt is a preserving agent, and fire, especially in the ancient world, uh, was a purifying agent. Uh, In Jesus' day, if you wanted pure gold, you needed to heat it up over a flame until all of the impurities could be separated and removed from it. So just a, a moment ago, Jesus spoke about the fires of hell, and he said they were an unquenchable fire meaning that it would be a place of unending destruction. But now he uses a second image of fire, but one that that has the opposite meaning. He says that if anyone submits their lives to him, that they don't need to fear being destroyed by the fires of hell. Rather, they can be purified and sanctified by, by the sanctifying fires of Christ. So so salt and hell can both preserve and purify, but only if you let them. 
which is why Jesus concludes his teaching saying, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? There is no purpose for unsalty salt. So if your soul has not been preserved and kept by the saving salt of Christ, uh, if you are just as rotten and are just as decomposed as the unsaved world around you, you're not going to be of any use. So Jesus has this serious conversation with his disciples about hell uh, to point them to the reality that he is the only means by which we could ever be preserved and purified. His gospel is the only salt by which we can be saved. So, So Jesus is saying in this text that he is going to go through hell on the cross So we don't have to. I mean, if you really want to see the clearest depiction of hell in the Bible, uh, just look to Jesus's words on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's true hell right there. That the Son of God experiencing the absence of the Father's love for the first time in all eternity and being forsaken by the Father and feeling that full weight of his wrath. That was hell. And Jesus experienced the the full force of that hell so that you and I would never have to go there ourselves. And, And because he endured hell, you and I can finally have hope. And for that, we should be eternally grateful. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your saving grace and for your love. Thank you for allowing your son to endure the weight of your wrath, uh, to endure hell so that we would not have to. Uh, Father, thank you for the hope that can be found when we realize that truth. Uh, And I pray that this truth would just be something we would cling desperately to. Uh, I pray that this would be something we walk away encouraged by this truth this morning, not discouraged. And I pray that we wouldn't just remember that truth today, but in all the days to come. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.